you have your Bibles this morning, uh, turn with me, Matthew chapter 3, and then for those of you who are uh, advanced preparation people, you can mark your spot in Matthew 26, and then we'll wind up in 1 Corinthians 11. So Matthew 3, 26, and then 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, it's been a while since I've been with you in the venue. I've been having some responsibilities downstairs, been out a bit to traveling and stuff, so it has been a while, but it's good to be back with you today. Today we wrap up our series in Foundations. Uh, we've been in for a couple of months. It'll be our last week in this, and then uh, we'll move into some Christmas-focused uh, messages next week to bring us up to, obviously, the celebration of Christmas in a couple of weeks. So we've covered a lot. We've talked about the Bible, how we got the Bible, talked about uh, the character and nature of God, talked about Jesus, talked about sin, talked about salvation. Last week, Pastor Dave and Pastor Brad talked to us about the church, the roles, the responsibilities and functions of the church. And as has already been mentioned this morning, today we're gonna talk about the two ordinances of the church. And let me first say, if you're military, there's an I in here, and it's a different ordinance than what your background may be, right? Because you're like, what kind of church am I a part of? Uh, we get the word ordinance from the word ordain, which means to be uh, decreed or, or something that is appointed or formally established by an authority. And so the ordinances we have are what Jesus commanded us as his church to do as practices to identify, to uh, demonstrate and remind us of who we are as his people. So the two ordinances that the Protestant church will look at and we're gonna talk about today are that of baptism and the Lord's Supper, all right? So if you're next Bible trivia round, people say, what are the ordinances of the church? You know, baptism and Lord's Supper, you're gonna win that round, all right? So that's where we are with that. Matthew chapter three describes for us and tells us the account of Jesus' baptism. So let's look at this and then we'll kind of uh, springboard on some truths and some principles from this. So it says in Matthew chapter three, verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John. Now, this is John the Baptist, who's his cousin, to be baptized by him. Now, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So now, if you've watched uh, The Chosen and have seen some of the interaction with Jesus and John the Baptist, uh, they, they were cousins. And so John recognized who Jesus was. He knew that from the time uh, he was in the womb because when Mary came to Elizabeth, the, the Bible says that John leapt at that. He knew who Jesus was as the Messiah. So when Jesus showed up and said, I want you to baptize me like you're baptizing everyone else, John was like, uh, hold up, this is backward you're the Messiah, you should be baptizing me. Uh, but Jesus says to him here in verse 15, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus kind of said, this is for us to fulfill all righteousness. We're gonna come back to that in a moment. Then he consented, this is John the Baptist, verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. If you have your Bible, underline up from the water says, and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So here we have the baptism of Jesus and we are able to, to see a couple of things here about baptism. First off, uh, Casey mentioned this just a moment ago, baptism does not save you. Okay, he referenced that earlier. We see this here because here's the thing. If baptism were something that brought salvation, Jesus didn't need to be saved. 
right? I mean, he was perfect at this point. He was going to be perfect as he completed his ministry in the next three years before he died on the cross. Jesus was perfect and had no need to be saved, right? And so baptism does not save us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say this, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So we're saved by grace through faith as a gift that we receive from God. Paul goes on and, and, and just, he drives this point home. He says, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Paul says, we're saved by grace through faith, not of any merit, not of any action or activity that we ourselves would take part in or that we would do. You know, sometimes we, we can, I think we've added to this kind of concept that we're going, Jesus plus blank equals salvation. Well, if you follow Jesus and, and are baptized, well, then you're saved. Well, no, the Bible says if you trust in Jesus by grace through faith, believe in his death, uh, his, his burial, his resurrection from the dead, you are saved through that. It's not believing in Jesus and being baptized. It's not believing in Jesus and going to church. It's not believing in Jesus and tithing or believing in Jesus and serving or doing kind deeds, all of these sort of things. These are all responses to the salvation that we've received as a gift of God by grace through faith. So salvation does not save us, just as it wasn't necessary to save Jesus who didn't need saving. The other very clear example of this from scripture is the thief on the cross. You remember the day that Jesus was crucified and the thief called out to him and said, you know, forgive me for what I've done. The one, the one thief was taunting him and Jesus said what to him? Today you will be with me in paradise. That thief was not baptized before his death, yet Jesus said, you will be with me in paradise. So we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone. Baptism then is a step, it's a sign of our obedience to the salvation that we receive. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But also recognize there's only one baptism. This can sometimes be a confusing point for persons and then there's different faith groups and denominations that teach there is one baptism. And to really understand kind of the concept of this, you gotta understand something from the book of Acts. You have the gospels, the life of Jesus and the book of Acts is when the church is being established and when the church is being born. And in this day and time, uh, when the Bible was being written, there were many, many religious leaders and groups that were coming up and there was a new person coming in town saying, God gave me a message and it's this. And so they're teaching and they're establishing different religious groups and all of these sort of things. Well, the religious leaders, part of their responsibility was to ensure that they were protecting God's people from false prophets, false truth, false doctrines, false religious groups because these things were popping up all the time. These new persons coming and saying, follow me, God's got a message. And there was a lot of confusion in this day and time. And so in the book of Acts, as the church is being established, there was this question of, well, how do we know that this is valid? This is a new teaching because they were following the teachings of Jesus and the religious leaders had opposed Jesus. And if you want a good book, and I don't have a ton of time to, to really delve into this day, I'll tell you, 30 years of ministry, this is one of the top three books that I recommend to people to read as believers, particularly new Christians, a book called Accidental Pharisees by Larry Osborne. Accidental Pharisee by Larry Osborne, uh, where he just reminds us that the Pharisees' heart and spirit was to serve God and to do right by him, but they got so absorbed in the legalism and things following their way that when God in the flesh showed up, they missed him. They had convictions that they were living out, but ultimately those 
convictions led to legalism and they missed the Messiah coming. It's a great book and it's a warning to us as Christians that we don't get so dogmatic sometimes on our convictions and our preferences of our faith that we begin to ostracize ourselves, divide and, and separate ourselves from the biblical community that we need. So the religious leaders, as, as uh, the church is being established in the book of Acts, we see some things that begin to happen in a supernatural way, signs and wonders, miracles are transpiring. But we see in the early church that baptisms are taking place. At Pentecost, Peter preached a sermon. It says those who believed and repented that day were baptized and 3,000 were added to their number that day. Philip went and he was preaching, Philip the evangelist. He preached and at the end of his message, many came to be baptized. And so we're seeing baptism take off. But in Acts chapter 8, in Acts chapter uh, 13, you see the situation where some, some of the apostles came to a place where people had believed in Jesus and the apostles were there and they were trying to discern whether or not they had followed the baptism of Jesus, the baptism of John. They were baptized and the Holy Spirit came and then they were able to speak in tongues and the biblical speaking in tongues was being able to speak in another language to share the gospel. So you see these things and so people have taught that, well, there's these multiple baptisms. You're baptized for salvation and then you're baptized to receive the Holy Spirit and then you're baptized to, to speak in tongues or maybe you're baptized with a new commission or a new call in ministry, but that's not the case. The Bible says there is one baptism. Ephesians chapter four, uh, verses one through six, Paul says there's one baptism, one Lord, one God and Father who is in all and who is through all. So there's one baptism. And you're like, well, what is all that stuff going on in the book of Acts? Well, I just told you there are a lot of different groups beginning to, to teach things. And so as the early church is being born, and as it's being established, God was preserving, God was giving his stamp of approval on the early church to say to the Jewish people, to say to the Gentiles and the world around, this is a work that I am a part of. I have established this. I am overseeing this, I am working through this, and this is going to be my work, my strategy for revealing myself to the world for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. And we talked about the church and the Great Commission, which gives us the command of baptism. The ordinance is something that Jesus commanded. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. Then what does he say? baptizing them. Very clear instruction that we are to baptize those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. This is Jesus' command. So as the early church is being born, people are like, is it true? Is it not true? This was the first fake news in history right here, right? People are trying to discern what's right, what's true, what's good, what do we know? Well, God's supernatural empowering of the apostles, him giving of the Holy Spirit is his way of affirming, I am involved in the church. This is of me, therefore give yourselves to it, be a part of it, and function within the instruction and the direction of this group of believers, the apostles and the ones they would appoint. So two parts of this, there's a descriptive thing that we see in scripture. Sometimes the Bible describes something and it's unique and it's outside of the norm and God does what God's gonna do because God is God, right? So we see a description of something, but that doesn't mean God is prescribing it as something that we should do. And the giving of the spirit, the speaking in tongues, all of these sort of things, that's not a prescription, that's a description of what was happening in the early church. But once the church was established, 
There's one baptism, we're a part of that church, we're established, and we begin to function within that once the church was established. That's important for something we're going to see related to the Lord's Supper in just a moment. So understand that part of it. There's one baptism that we participate in which identifies us with the local church, the body of believers, and it's from that that we understand these next few things about baptism. First is this, baptism is by immersion, Baptism is by immersion. You just saw Claudia baptized here. The word baptize itself, that literal word, doesn't mean sprinkling. Uh, it doesn't mean pouring over. It means to dip, to dunk under, or to be immersed. That is what the word means, to dip, to dunk under, or to immerse something. You saw in Jesus' baptism, when John baptized him, it said that Jesus came where? Up from the water. If you come up from, where were you before? You were down in, right? The Bible tells us in John chapter 3 that John baptized where there was much water. You know why he went where there was much water? So people could be immersed. You don't need much water if you're sprinkling or pouring over. The Ethiopian eunuch, when Philip shared the gospel with him and he was saved, the eunuch would have had water for drinking in his chariot. And if he had been to be sprinkled or poured over as a mode of baptism, he could have done that from his chariot. But as they're riding along the road, as he's responded to the gospel, the eunuch said, look, here's water. And he went down, Philip baptized him. And after he was baptized, Philip was taken away in the spirit. Baptism is by immersion. That's why we as a Baptist church practice baptism by immersion. Well, why do we practice baptism by immersion? What does it mean? What does it signify? Well, baptism symbolizes our salvation. Baptism is a symbol of our salvation. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, we are buried with him in baptism. Think about that terminology. We are buried with him in baptism. And think about what you just saw with Claudia. The symbol of salvation is this. We are sinners steeped in our sin. We confess our sin to Jesus Christ. We believe that he died on the cross to pay the price for our sin. When Jesus died on the cross, what happened to him? They took him off of that cross. And where did they put him? They laid him in a tomb. And three days later, he was resurrected from the dead, giving new life and saying to those who would believe in him and confess their sins, be forgiven of those sins, that we would have new life in him as well. And so baptism is this symbol of salvation that just as you saw, Claudia, she is confessing to us and to the world that she has died to her old nature, to her sin. She has been buried symbolically to her sin and her old self. And just as Jesus is resurrected from the dead three days later, she is born into new life. And so we get this symbol of our salvation. Thinking about salvation, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter six that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So if we're going to be forgiven of sin through the blood of Jesus Christ, if you are going to be cleansed of that, if you're going to wash your clothes, how do you wash your clothes? With water. Do you spray water from a water bottle on your clothes? Add some soap, let it go. No, you toss it in the washing machine, you get the water. It's this cleansing. When we're baptized by immersion, it symbolizes that we are covered fully and completely 
by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He forgives us of sins past, present, and future. And so the symbolism becomes so rich when we think about and we see the symbol of baptism by immersion. And so the final thing that we understand about baptism is this, final two things actually. One is baptism is a step of obedience. Casey mentioned this. It's a step of obedience. Jesus went to be baptized by John and John said, time out, this is backward. Jesus said, no, this is to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is giving us an example of the new covenant that he was establishing. The old covenant had been circumcision. The new covenant is that of baptism. We're identified with God's people through baptism that Jesus would establish for us. He took this step of obedience as an example for us that when we believe in Christ for salvation, we would follow in in baptism as our very first step of obedience. And I always say this, when we think about obedience to Christ, we're called to a life of obedience. The Great Commission, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Christ calls us to a life of obedience. If we're not going to take the very first step of obedience in baptism, what makes us think we're going to take the second step or the third step? or whatever step beyond that. And also think about this. We celebrate baptism with the body of Christ, with believers, people who who clap and who celebrate and are so excited to see someone taking the step of obedience. If we don't have the courage and the boldness to step out in front of those people to follow in baptism, what makes us think we're gonna have the courage and the boldness and the strength to go into a hostile world that may reject, that may persecute, that doesn't want to hear the gospel message? And so this step of obedience is this first step where we're saying to Jesus, Lord, I'm taking this step. And sometimes it's uncomfortable. Part of the reason is as as Casey baptized Claudia, we so often as pastors, you'll hear us talk to a person by the profession of faith as people are like, don't make me talk in front of anybody. All right. You know, it's like, do I have to get my testimony up there? There's, there's this fear of being in front of people. People are, they're, they're nervous about water and, and being immersed in all that. So it, it can be uncomfortable. It can stretch us. But let me tell you something. Following Jesus is sometimes uncomfortable. It will stretch you over and over and over again. Yet what does Jesus, Jesus call us to? It's a life of obedience. And baptism is that first step of obedience. And finally this, baptism identifies us. It unites us with the body of Christ. It is our way of saying to the world, because Jesus demonstrated this for us and he called us to it, that we are a part of his family, the body of believers. Now, some of you have been looking today, you're like, why is Curtis wearing his name tag today? He's he's preaching, did he forget he's got his name tag on? No, I wore this today because this identifies me as a staff member at our church. If you're here and you're a guest and you're like, man, I got a question on who to talk to, you would start looking for some kind of a name tag, some kind of a shirt, something to identify a person who's on staff. So this identifies me as being a staff member here. And we understand this. You go to Best Buy, you look for the blue shirts or the black shirts if you're looking for the Geek Squad. You go to David's Burgers, you look for the person who yells at you, you know, that's how you know you, you, the employee there. You go to Walmart and you look, no, they're not helping you at Walmart. So that's, a, um, so that was mean, wasn't it? I, I'll, I need to pray. I'll, I'll ask forgiveness for that for Lord's Supper in a minute. But you, you get the idea that, that it identifies us. That's not what baptism does. Baptism identifies us with the body of Christ, with other believers. And so the 
response that what do we do with baptism is very simple today. If you've never followed in believer's baptism, as Casey mentioned just a few minutes ago, it's time for you to take that step of obedience. What is holding you back from you stepping out, professing, symbolizing your faith in Christ to be identified with his body, to begin setting an example in your life of obedience. And so I'm gonna encourage you to do that. Find one of us as pastors. You've seen Adam up here. I've been here. Casey's here. We have other pastoral staff members in our church. You know other pastors. Contact us. We will get you set up. We will begin the process of, of a setting up a time for you to be baptized, to declare your faith and your salvation in Christ. I would also encourage you this. When I was a pastor before, we would uh, actually give out to people who were being baptized. We would give them invitations to fill out, kind of like a birthday party invitation, because here's a great opportunity for you to share the gospel with your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers and your relatives, is when there's a baptism, invite people to come and be a part of it. They may never set foot in a church at a regular invitation, but I'm telling you, you, one of your family members invites them to a baptism, your children are being baptized and they give that invitation to a teacher, to a friend, to a coworker. Those people show up. And I've seen over and over again, people will come and have a great experience. They'll meet people in the church and they'll go, I had a really good time today. And, and they'll have opportunities to engage and talk about the symbolism of baptism and what it meant. And some people even would have a party and be able to share their testimony among their friends and their neighbors who were there. But it's a great opportunity for you to introduce people to the gospel through the symbol of baptism and being a part of a worship experience. So just encourage you, if you have not taken this step of obedience, don't wait, don't put it off. Why delay your obedience to Christ? and your next step of obedience and your next step of obedience because God wants to use you. He has plans and purposes for you in your life. All right, so baptism is ordinance number one. Second ordinance we have is that of the Lord's Supper. Flip over to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, this is the account of Jesus with his disciples partaking of the Passover feast. This is him doing the Lord's Supper with his disciples just before his betrayal, his arrest, his false trial, and ultimately his crucifixion and then the resurrection. So Matthew chapter 26, we're going to start in verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, unleavened bread was bread made without yeast. It was harder. Uh, it was flat. It was more of a dry bread. Uh, it was bread that would last longer. It wouldn't begin to mold as quickly. And we'll talk a moment about what that was for. But is this the, the first day of the of unleavened bread. I'm sorry, we're in the wrong verse here. That's verse 17, setting it up. I just set the context for verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. This is the unleavened bread we just talked about. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of my cup. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And then flip on over to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We just saw Jesus' instruction to his disciples. And then here in 1 Corinthians 11, we see Paul speaking to an early church that was being established and they were having some issues. They were having some problems. I know it's college basketball season and y'all are on the must bus and all that sort of stuff. Well, the Corinthian church was on the struggle bus is the bus they were on, all right? Lots of conflicts, lots of problems, lots and lots of issues. And in the midst of this conflict, 
the Apostle Paul speaks to them about the Lord's Supper. And he admonishes, he rebukes, he kind of casts vision for it, but also he reminds them of a couple of principles related to the Lord's Supper. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, when he when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Underline that, that phrase that you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a proclamation of the gospel when we participate in the Lord's Supper. Paul goes on and says in verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Now, you may have just thought, wait, wait, wait. Did Paul say that some of them partook of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, and they died? Yeah, that's what he said. And now some of you are going, didn't you just say a few minutes ago we're going to take the Lord's Supper today? I think I might pass. <laughs> it's a little nerve-wracking, right? Well, remember what I said about the book of Acts and the church being established and a description as opposed to a prescription of what happens. In the early church as it's being established, God protected his name and his holiness and his righteousness. And he protected that by guarding the purity of the local church. We read the story of Ananias and Sapphira who came and they brought an offering to the Lord and they gave with impure motives and they died at the altar giving their offering. Some of you are like, well, I'm not taking Lord's Supper and I'm not giving, right? You like, tell me, they, they die for this sort of stuff. Well, this is God protecting the purity of his church. But as his church was established, uh, God no longer displays his judgment and pronouncement upon sin in that way. We're able to be forgiven of our sin through Jesus as we participate in these things. And so, uh, but this was a warning to the early believers to simply take the Lord's Supper seriously and to examine their hearts and their lives for God to reveal sin that they could confess and be forgiven of. And as we think about the Lord's Supper, just, just very quickly to kind of walk through, Jesus partook of this. It was the Passover feast. It was the, the Thursday heading into what we think of as Easter weekend, Good Friday, when Jesus died, his resurrection on Sunday. The Jews celebrated this as Passover feast, remembering their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. You think all the way back to that, all the plagues, the culminating plague was the death of the firstborn. And God told them to make unleavened bread because they were going to travel on their journey. They needed to make it fast, not, let time, not enough time for the yeast to rise, and they needed to take it with them on a journey. So they had unleavened bread. And then they were to kill a Passover lamb, one-year-old without blemish, spotless, 
perfect condition to kill that lamb. And then they took, and the Bible says very specifically, a hyssop branch. And they dipped it in the blood and they applied it to the doorpost and the top of the door. And when the Lord came through to kill the firstborn that night, because the blood was applied, he passed over and death did not come to those households. It passed over those places. Remember Hebrews 6, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. When that blood was applied, it protected from death. And so the Jews would celebrate this Passover feast all week long, but they would have this meal, the Seder meal. There was a 15-step process to the Seder meal. The food that they had, the bitter herbs that they ate, uh, all the things, the, symbol, the symbolism of their time in Egypt, the deliverance from slavery, the Seder meal is powerful. Uh, we don't celebrate in that same way, but if you ever have the opportunity to be a part of, to lead, uh, to do that with your family, would encourage you to do that. It is a tremendous way to reflect and think about the goodness of God as grace and mercy and to see a picture of of Jesus who came and celebrated this meal with his disciples to fulfill that. One of the things, just, just one example of the, uh, the Seder meal is they, they, they take the matzah, this unleavened bread, and there were three pieces of it. And they would take the middle piece and they would break it. And they would partake of this middle piece of bread. Now think about three pieces of bread, the middle piece being broken, Jesus with his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. It's a remembrance of the Passover, but Jesus saying, this is my body broken for you. Now, how many pieces of bread did I say there were? Three. How many parts of the Trinity are there that we saw at Jesus' baptism when he was baptized, the heavens opened up, the, the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove and God's voice spoke. Three parts of the Trinity, God the Father, Jesus the Son, the middle part, the Holy Spirit in the world working in the lives of his believers, that middle part is broken this is my body broken for you. So the symbolism of the Seder meal, Jesus being there with the apostles saying, this is my body broken for you. And then they would eat part of that piece of bread. So just the richness of this, that Jesus says, this is the new covenant. Before it was the animal sacrifices, no longer were animal sacrifices needed. Now it was the new covenant in Jesus' blood. And so receiving of the Lord's Supper symbolizes that we have received Jesus' death, he lived a perfect life, died as our substitute, was resurrected from the dead. And if we believe in him, we too shall be forgiven of our sins and will receive new and eternal life in him. The other component of this is the, the shedding of blood. Remember the branch, the hyssop branch? John 19, 29 tells us that when Jesus is on a cross, they took a hyssop branch. It's very specific. It says it's the hyssop branch. And they took the sponge and they applied it to Jesus' lips to remind us that the blood that Jesus shed on the cross is the blood that cleanses us of our sins. So these two ordinances of the church remind us of one very simple truth. We as God's people are called to live on a regular, consistent basis in the continual transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not a one and done and we're saved and we're on autopilot. We live in the power of the gospel day in and day out because we continue to sin. Remember at the, the Passover meal, the Seder meal with his disciples, Jesus went to wash their feet and they're like, you're not gonna wash our feet. Peter in particular, you're not gonna wash my feet. And Jesus said, unless I wash your feet, you have no part of me. And then Peter's like, well, don't just wash my feet. Give me a whole bath. And Jesus said, you don't need to be cleansed again. Just have your feet washed. He's reminding us that even as believers, 
we're going to sin. We don't need to be resaved when we sin and then rebaptize all of this again. But when we sin, we come back to Jesus. We confess that sin and he forgives us and cleanses us of that sin as we think of in the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper is a reminder for us on a regular, continual basis. We practice it about once a quarter at Geyer Springs, and we're going to do that in just a few moments. It's a reminder to us that Jesus has died for us, that we are forgiven, cleansed, and transformed in his continuing work of salvation and of the gospel. So here's what we're going to do. In just a moment, I am going to pray for us. And then we are going to do what Paul said. We're going to take some time in self-examination where you're just going to sit quietly, very reflectively where you are in your seat. And I want you to pray and say, Lord, reveal any sin, any disobedience, any waywardness in my life. And if God brings something to mind, is there, confess that. Thank God for the forgiveness that's available through Jesus Christ. Celebrate the fact that you can be and are forgiven of that sin. And then when you are ready... Uh, our, our band's going to come and they're going to play some music and we're just going to have this time of quiet reflection with some music. Once you have spent time in self-reflection and you're ready, we have four stations set up around the room and our deacons are making their way now where you can go and receive the Lord's Supper today to do what Jesus commanded and what Paul said to proclaim Jesus' death and his return. So you can come to the two front tables up here. Our deacons will give you uh, the piece of bread, their, their glove for that portion. Uh, you can take the cup. You can receive that right there at the table then return back to your seat there are two more stations in the back so you can go back there as well if you prefer one of the pre-packaged uh kits for communion it's got the wafer and the cup those are at the back table so you can go and get the pre-packaged there just grab that uh, and receive those there but we want this to be a time where we do exactly what paul said what jesus taught the disciples that we remember and we reflect upon the salvation that we've received through Jesus' death on the cross of Calvary. And we invite anyone who has believed and placed their faith and their trust in Christ to join us in this. You don't have to be a member of Geyer Springs First Baptist Church, uh, but we, this is, uh, the Lord's Supper is for those who have believed and placed their faith and their trust in Christ. So if you've not yet made that decision but need to do that today, uh, I'll be right down here in the front. You can come, and I'd love to speak with you about that. You can speak with some of our staff after service today. But we want you today to know that there are nothing more important than you giving your heart and your life in Christ, trusting in what Jesus gave us as a picture of his death, his salvation, and the forgiveness of our sins through the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood so that we could be forgiven and made right with him. So after I pray, you reflect when you're ready, you go and receive the Lord's Supper, return to your seat. We're going to close with a song uh, and then we will be dismissed from there.